The uh, message this morning is entitled, The Lord and Me, but you're all more than welcome to listen in. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up, shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing, Holy, Holy, Holy. Proverbs chapter, or ver, Proverbs 3, verse 5 to 7 says this, <clears throat> Trust in the Lord with all your heart, and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him, and he will make straight your paths. Be not wise in your own eyes. <clears throat> Fear the Lord and turn away from evil. So with this in mind, let's turn to the prayer of Paul in Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. Reading from Ephesians chapter 1, verses 15 to 23. For this reason, ever since I heard about your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened in order that you may know the hope to which he has called you, the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints and his incomparably great power for us who believe. And that power is like the working of his mighty strength, which he exerted in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at the right hand in the heavenly realms, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, and every title that can be given, not only in this present age, but also in the one to come. And God placed all things under his feet and appointed him to be head over everything for the church, which is his body the fullness of him who fills everything in every way. Amen. The heart of Paul's prayer comes at the end of verse 17, where Paul prays that you may know him better. Paul is praying that the Ephesians might know God better. This means that he is writing to and praying for believers who already have some knowledge of God. His central request is, O Lord, I pray that these folks who already know you might come to a new and deeper knowledge of who you really are. He wants them to know God deeply, personally, and intimately. And back in verse 3, he says, We have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. So the prayer is not, not, Lord, give us a new blessing, or Lord, but Lord, help us to realize the blessings that we already have. And it's not, Lord, give us a new truth, but help us experience the truth that we already know. Spiritual truth can be academic and cold and formal. So he's praying, Lord, turn them on to the truth. Lord, they know you. Now make them excited about knowing you. There are possibly three levels of knowing God. There may be more, but There's three that I can think of. First, there's the level of experience. All of us know, all of us who know the Lord have some experience with Him that we can use to help others. 
Second, there's a level of knowledge. And this comes from going to church, listening to sermons, reading the Bible, reading good books, going to a Christian college or a seminary. And the third level is the level of wisdom. And this level comes only by prayer. We begin to see things through God's eyes and less through our own eyes. And peace only comes from this level. It's not measurable, explainable, or understandable. Level one and two are not prerequisites. And prayer lifts the illiterate to great levels of peace and wisdom where certain PhDs in religion may feel empty. Our prayers become less gimme and more help me see what you want me to learn through this to deepen my relationship with you. God invites us to seek his face. He wants us to know him better. Verse 18, I pray also that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened. This is the heart of the prayer. And it's the only time that the phrase, the eyes of your heart, appears in the New Testament. The heart has eyes. When Paul speaks of your heart, he's not referring to the organ in your chest that pumps blood throughout your body. The term heart refers to what we might call the real you, the place inside you where the decisions of life are made. The heart is the place where we decide what values we will live by and what direction we will go and how we will live life every day. Every important decision that we make is made by our heart. And our heart has eyes that can be opened or shut. When the eyes of our heart are closed to the light of God, we stumble blindly through life, making one dumb choice after another. We fall into sinful patterns and we break God's laws. We end up driving into the ditch. We make the same mistakes over and over again. And we enter one dead-end relationship after another. Why? Because the eyes of our heart are shut and we lack moral vision. The light of God is shut out of our life. That means we can see and yet be blind at the same time. That is, we can have 20-20 vision with our physical eyes, but the eyes of our heart can be blind to the light of God. And there are lots of people like that in the world. Physically they can see, but spiritually they're totally blind. When the eyes of our heart are shut, we lack moral vision. Our God has given us all we need. It's all ours. And it's all wrapped up in one person, Jesus Christ. Oh, that we might know him better. Oh, that the eyes, our eyes might be open to see things more clearly. Oh, that we might love him and serve him and make him the center of our life. Let's turn to 1 Peter verses, chapter 1, verses 3 to 12. Praise be to to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade, kept in heaven 
for you, who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready and to be revealed in the last time. In this, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may be proved genuine and may result in praise, glory, and honor when Jesus Christ is revealed. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy, for you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls. Concerning the salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come to you search intently and with the greatest care trying to find out the time and the circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you. When they spoke of the things that have now been told to you by those who have preached the gospel to you, by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven, even angels long to look into these things. Amen. So when Peter, Peter, when Peter wrote this letter, things were changing. In the beginning of the first century church, the government remained unconcerned about this new religious sect. But as the church grew, the constrictions of the government increased. Peter is writing to a people who are finding it increasingly difficult to live their faith. And even today, it's not always easy to be a Christian. But we must find a way to live our faith without compromise. Peter helps us gain some insight into how to live an authentic, Christ-centered faith in the midst of difficult times. The question is not if we have faith, because everyone has faith. The atheist has faith that his rational reasoning has removed the possibility of God. He has faith in his intellectual ability. Others have faith in their abilities, their skills, their connections, their friends, their families, and in themselves. Everyone has faith. The question is, where is our faith anchored? Sooner or later, the storms of life will begin to blow, and then the question becomes, will the anchor of faith hold? Jesus says that we are to put our treasures in heaven, where moth and rust cannot destroy and the thief cannot steal. And if our faith is set upon the things of this world, then our faith will perish. Countless kingdoms have come and gone and fallen. Economies have been built and destroyed. And nations have been established and vanished. All that is left of some of those kingdoms are the ruins that can be found in a museum. Only the kingdom of God has remained constant in the past 2,000 years. Our faith is to be set in heaven and not of the things of this world. And that is the only way that we can know that our faith is imperishable. History is full of leaders who started off with the best of intentions, but pride, ego, 
or other flaws got in the way. And if we place our faith in leaders, it's, it's just a matter of time before the possible corrupt nature of the individual is revealed. But Christ has no sin, and our faith is in the power of God. God has absolute power, but it is uncorrupted. There is no pride or ego in the power of Christ. And in the scope of eternity, Jesus is the only person who has absolute power. But not only that, he is also the only person in whom absolute power has not corrupted, even a little bit. Our faith can only be uncorruptible when it is placed in Christ. A faith in Jesus Christ will carry us through this life and even into the world to come. A faith in the death, burial, and resurrection of God's only Son is far more valuable than gold. Our faith is in something eternal, not in something that can be destroyed. And as we grow in Christ, we learn more about him and his love. And it's only through a life given to Christ that we will begin to see him as he really is. As our faith grows, more about the deeper nature of Christ is revealed to us. And the end result of a Christ-centered life and faith is that our lives are shaped and molded by him. And as our faith begins to reflect that deeper knowledge of Jesus, our lives will begin to change. When you and I live differently because our faith is growing, those around us will see the difference. Quite literally, our life begins to reflect the image of Christ. Just as the goldsmith knew that he had pure gold, when he looked into the metal and could see his reflection, Jesus desires that his reflection be in our lives. Peter says, the real faith is loving a Christ that you have never seen, but still know that he exists. And our faith is not built upon philosophy, philosophy, intellect, or creative speculations. Our faith is built upon the historical fact that Jesus, God's only son, died on a Roman cross in Jerusalem on a hill called Golgotha in 30 AD. It's a faith which has stood the test of time, proven itself faithful when tested, and is only the only true faith which holds in the storms of life. All of us have faith, but will our anchor of faith hold in the storms of life? It's not a question of if we have faith. It's not a question of if the storms of life will come. It's a question of will the anchor of faith hold through the storms? The time to anchor our faith and our hope to Christ is now, before the storms come up. When we think of the commandments of God, love one another would come first, because that's a command that we all understand and we like. Be holy comes second, because we know that it's important. Fearing God comes last, because we don't know what it means, and we don't like the sound of it. Fear God seems like such a negative concept. 
that brings to mind a picture of cringing before an angry deity who is waiting to zap us with another lightning bolt. We can't grow spiritually if we only pay attention to those commands of Scripture that we personally like. And if we want to grow as Christians, we must pay special attention to those biblical teachings that pull us out of our comfort zone. If we only listen to what we like, we'll stay the way we are. If we embrace the challenging parts of God's Word, then we can grow. Here's a few verses from Proverbs that help us flesh out the meaning of fear. Proverbs 1, verse 7. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. 8.13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. 9.10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 14.26. He who fears the Lord has a secure fortress, and for his children it will be a refuge. 14.27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life turning a man from the snares of death. 15.16, better a little with the fear of the Lord than great wealth with turmoil. 16.6, through the fear of the Lord, a man avoids evil. And 22.4, humility in the fear of the Lord brings wealth, honor, and life. I think we can summarize all these verses in two statements. The fear of the Lord is the key to a long life, wisdom, prosperity, knowledge, and happiness. And the fear of the Lord is the single most important quality that a father can hand hand down to his children. Two other Old Testament verses help us understand what the fear of the Lord is. It's an attitude of the heart. In Deuteronomy 5.29, Oh, that their hearts would be inclined to fear me. And keep all my commands always, so that it might go well with them and their children forever. And the fear of the Lord is a choice. Proverbs 1.29 Since they hated knowledge and did not choose to fear the Lord. So the fear of the Lord combines two qualities of love plus respect. It's a loving respect and it's a respectful love. To fear someone in this sense is to love them and respect them at the same time. We can see this more clearly if we state this in the negative. Where there is no respect, there is no love. It's a choice that I make to obey God because I love him and I want to please him. The fear of the Lord is an ongoing attitude of my heart that causes me to choose over and over again to obey God even when it might be easier to do something else. I make that choice because I love God and I want to please Him. The fear of the Lord is not cringing fear, which is respect without love, and it's not irrelevant flippancy, which is love without respect. Respect plus love equals the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is not the opposite of love. It's what real love is all about. A healthy sense of fear can be a positive motivation to do what's right. And this sort of loving respect is the basis of our relationship with God. When I choose 
to fear the Lord, I'm choosing out of respect and love to do the things that please Him. All that I do in my life comes back to this principle. The fear of the Lord is the most positive attitude that we can have towards God. And there are three, three reasons or motives that we ought to fear God. Number one, life is short. We're strangers on this earth. No one lives forever. We're born, we live 30, 40, 50, 60 years. And if we're strong and healthy and blessed by God, we may live to be 80 or even 90. And some people live to be 100. But it doesn't matter how long we live because every, eventually everyone will die. We're all terminal. The only difference is that some of us know it and the rest of us act like we're going to live forever. Only one life will soon be passed. Only what's done for Christ will last. Reason or motive number two, to fear God. He is our judge. We call on a Father who judges us impartially. To call God our Father is a comfort. To say that he is a judge isn't quite so comforting. When God judges, he sees right through the little mask that we put on to make ourselves look good to other people. God isn't fooled. And he judges us according to our works. That concept troubles some people. Aren't we all saved by faith? Yes, we are. We are saved by faith. But we are judged by our works. James 2.26 tells us, Faith without works is dead. Hebrews 11.6, Without faith, it is impossible to please God. And the faith that pleases God will always produce a life of good works. As Christians, our works will be judged, not to determine our eternal destiny, but to determine our rewards in heaven. And reason or motive number three to fear God, <clears throat> the blood of Jesus is so precious. When scripture tells us you were redeemed, it uses a word that means to be set free from the, by the payment of a price. The term comes from the slave markets of the first century. And when Jesus died on the cross, his blood paid the price to set us free from the slave market of sin. And of all the words that believers give to Jesus Christ, none is more precious than the name Redeemer. We use other names more often, such as Lord and Savior. But no word touches the heart like the name Redeemer. It reminds us of what it cost him to save us from our sins. Redeemer is the name of Christ on the cross. We remember not only that he gave us salvation, but also that he paid a mighty price for it. His blood is like the blood of the Passover lamb without spot or blemish. When the death angel saw the blood of the lamb applied to the doorpost in Egypt, he passed over that house and the firstborn were spared. In the same way, when the precious blood of Jesus is applied to our heart by faith, God's judgment will pass over our life and instead of being destroyed in hell, we will be spared. And no amount of money 
could ever buy that. Only the blood of Jesus could deliver us from hell, forgive our sins, and open heaven to us. We're here so briefly. Fear God. We're judged so completely. Fear God. And we're loved so deeply. Fear God. Proverbs 15, 8-9 tells us, The sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but the prayer of the upright is acceptable to him. The way of the wicked is an abomination to the Lord, but he loves him who pursues righteousness. And there is none more righteous than Jesus, so let us pursue him. Proverbs 16.25 tells us, There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. And Proverbs 10.29, The way of the Lord is a stronghold to the blameless, but destruction to evildoers. So what is the way of the Lord? Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. John 1 One says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But Proverbs 13.13 says, whoever despises the Word brings destruction on himself, but he who reserves the commandment will be rewarded. Romans 10.16 basically sums up God's command. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. People clearly understand what the will of God is, yet they stubbornly refuse to obey the gospel by coming to Christ. What does God command us to do? He commands us (coughs) to obey the gospel. And And he so commands us because someone had to pay for the sins committed against him. And someone will pay. If we do not obey the gospel, we will pay for the sins that we've committed against God, including that extra burden of having rejected God's only begotten Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. But if we cast ourselves upon Him, He will save us from our sins, even washing them from God's books with His own blood. This Jesus will do if we will do what God commands us to do, obey the gospel by coming to Jesus. And so, what can we say to the Lord God in humble gratitude? Perhaps these simple words of longing. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord. Open the eyes of my heart. I want to see you. I want to see you. To see you high and lifted up. Shining in the light of your glory. Pour out your power and love as we sing holy, holy, holy. Amen. Thank you.